on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. I think we've got to put some sort of cap on the tuition inflation. You know, it's 8% a year. And so every nine years it doubles. And that's more than any other industry. It's just insane. Especially as we look at the world that it is today, where, where is that money going? Because there's no need for groundskeepers or really like a whole lot of administrative staff. Like it's not going towards educators or the professors and things like that. So where is it going and why are we spending so much money? We don't need another, you know, medical school right now that we can't even go on campus. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey you, glad you decided to join me today on the podcast. As I mentioned in my last solo episode, I was going to start sharing my founder journey as it happens in real time. And one of the most important things a founder can do before developing a solution is to truly understand the problem. Well, today I wanted to understand the financial problem of higher education from a perspective I couldn't find anywhere else. So after hearing her captivating interview on the Portal podcast with Eric Weinstein, I decided to invite Kimberly De La Cruz on the show. Kimberly is an award-winning journalist turned publicist who transitioned from covering nightlife and entertainment at Nevada's largest daily to a career in public relations. She's currently the spokesperson for Seeking Arrangement in Sugar Baby University, who has created an uncanny solution to the American student debt crisis and insane tuition rates. The world's largest sugar dating website is challenging this enormous burden on young people by connecting them with sugar daddies, generous individuals with the means to help them with tuition, books, living expenses, and everything else that results in fewer college students having to incur the lifetime of crippling debt. So this discussion is not really about whether the Sugar Baby University is right or wrong. It's about the $1.6 trillion student debt in higher education that has created the foundation for this to even be possible. See, the greatest challenge for higher education today is to decrease its price premium and to increase its contributions to students and society. My desire to speak with Kimberly was to pull back the curtain on the areas that the present institutions, as you're going to find out in this interview, are just unwilling to look. And as someone dead set on building a better university for the future, it's going to require knowing all angles of the problem. So Kimberly is one of but many millennials who are collectively carrying this weight in a post-college life. She shares her unique journey through her higher education and whether or not it has been valuable to her success. We also look at the true cost of higher education and why students feel compelled to solutions such as Sugar Baby University. And she shares the top universities and degrees of the students using this service and if any of the institutions have an interest or concern about their students. And finally, looking at what we might do about the challenges higher education faces. I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation. If you want to continue to follow my journey or the stories of the dozens of other successful founders that I share every single week, then please subscribe. Without further ado, I give you this fascinating conversation with Kimberly De La Cruz. Well, can you share a little bit of your background and particularly your educational journey? Yeah, so I started college when I was 16. I started at a community college as a way to fulfill all of my high school credits, just to make sure that I could graduate with my class on time. And from there, I've just been kind of in and out of higher education for most of my adult life. I stopped going to school when I was 25 because career led me in a different direction. 
but I eventually transferred to UNLV to study um, journalism and then to Arizona State to continue studying journalism, but online so that I could continue working at the newspaper where I was working. And I kind of stopped going there because I was offered a full-time job for the newspaper that I was working at. And it just didn't make sense for me to keep going to school for something I'd already landed a job doing. Right. Have you thought about going back for the finishing? Because you had said before that uh, you weren't quite finished yet. Yeah, so I didn't actually finish. And I've thought a lot about going back. I just feel like it's sort of an uphill battle for me. You know, my my school that I just left was Arizona State. That was the most recent place I was attending. And um, I'm an out-of-state um, student for there. So my tuition would be much more expensive. It's like $13,000 a year. And then at UNLV here in Las Vegas, where I also have some credits, I could do in-state, but the amount of credits it would take for me to have my degree actually be from there um, is so much that I would have to go for way longer than I need. And it ended up being the same exact cost as going to like Arizona State for the amount of time. And unfortunately for me, I have maxed out what well, was told by the government that I was maxed out on the amount you could take for a bachelor's degree. And so I wouldn't be able to, to take out any more loans. So everything either way would be out of pocket. So definitely thought about going back, especially as I get older, but I, it doesn't seem realistic at this point. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you've gotten more from your own hustle and your own experiences than you did from your degree. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I would not be in the position that I am if I didn't go to school. I had a lot of really, really awesome internships that led me to um, where I am today that I wouldn't have been able to, to get if I wasn't in college. But the degree itself and the remaining courses I have, I think would be less beneficial to the years I've spent in the industry. How much of your education do you feel like has been applied as executable skills that you've actually been able to use? Very little of it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because I think like, you know, I got through like the, I I had just started taking like upper division classes in journalism and things like that. So I'd taken all the fundamentals. I'd say, honestly, like um, from a journalism and public relations background, like the majority of what I use that's from school is I know how to write in AP style. I can edit a press release. I know how to like write for news and read like different things. But outside of that, everything else is pretty much learned on the job. And unfortunately, a lot of the administrators, I'm sorry, not administrators, a lot of the educators in both um, universities that I attended were so out of the industry, um, so far removed by like a decade or so at times. And news is such an ever evolving industry, communications as well. And so it was really hard to find anything beneficial that I wasn't already getting in me being in a newsroom or being around journalists and things like that. I just felt like a lot of the things that they had to offer were outdated and irrelevant. Of the people that have you've worked for, have they looked at your education and thought, oh, yes, this is somebody you want to hire? Or were they looking more at your experience? Experience, for sure. Like I've, I've never really had to explain this gap in my um, finishing my, my bachelor's degree, which is where I left off. I got lucky, though, one of the internships I had while I was in college was at the newspaper, the Las Vegas Review Journal, which is the biggest daily here in Nevada. And so I started as a breaking news reporter, just working like from like 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. listening to police scanners and stuff and just started exploring other options there. And so I had already made the connection and kind of gotten a foot in the door. So when it came time for me to get a full time job as like a general assignment reporter or find my own beat they already were considering me because they knew the work that I could do and it didn't matter to them. 
I would say though, in, in transitioning from journalism into communications, like public relations, I do feel like it's looked at a lot more. And it's not to say that that's not the case in journalism other places too. I know that I've looked on like LinkedIn and things to be a reporter at other outlets and it does, it is a requirement that you have a bachelor, but I haven't run into too many issues so far. I think, you know, having these skills that you've learned elsewhere, having all of this experience and weighing that against like what you've learned in education, the question really comes up of the value of that degree. And then, you know, for you particularly, am I going to pay that to actually go and finish and get the piece of paper at the end? Yeah, it's a, it's a crossroads I'm definitely at right now. It's something that I want to do just so I can say that I did it. You know, I feel like there's like a little yeah. bit of pride and slash arrogance there where it's like, I don't want to be the only one of my friend group who doesn't have their bachelor's degree. I'm surrounded by like people who have their master's and our professors here at UNLV. And I don't feel like they look down on me, but I feel like they kind of look at me like, well, why can't you just finish? And so it's something I definitely want to just to say I can. But for me, like, I don't know what the value would be in that. Like, I, I don't know how much that would be worth or how much it would help me further myself along, as opposed to me just continuing to work and try to get promoted and learn more skills from the people I'm surrounded by and my leaders. Right. And you also happen to have some children as well, right? Which would yeah. present a challenge to going back. Yeah. I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. I just, I just had an eight-year-old, but he just turned nine. And that is a challenge in itself. I was going to college. The majority of my academic career, actually, in higher education was while they were very small. But I would stay at home. I didn't have the same time constraints that I do now as um, I'm in my career. So having two small children and going to college was complicated, but not impossible. Having two small children going to college and working feels like... I don't know how I would do that. I, I, I really don't, especially now with distance learning. Like I'm also going to be a teacher this year myself. So <laughs> it feels like it'd be pretty impossible, at least in the near future. Yeah. And the, the income that you would have to sacrifice taking time away from work in order to go to college, but then also have to pay that out of pocket. It, it really puts a big, uh, big hinder in your finances. Yeah, and I don't know how understanding my job would be about me wanting to take any sort of time to, to do school. I think for them, I actually work at a pretty you know, dynamic company where education is important, but skills and ability and personality matter much more as a whole. So if I were to say I want to take some time away and um, focus on education instead, they probably would say, well, why? Like, aren't you learning enough here? Don't you have leaders here who can teach you what you want to do? If what you want to do is totally different than what we're doing here, then maybe we need to look at something else. Because aside from being a spokesperson for my brand, I actually run my, my whole team. So I manage people all over the world to, to do their job. So me being away from a, a position like that would be very challenging to, to the people who work with me. Well, when you were originally going into higher education, what were your desires? What were you hoping to get out of it? So to be quite honest, I went to school at first to study criminal justice. I thought I was going to join the FBI. I had watched like one too many crime shows and was like obsessed with criminal minds. And I was like, I'm going to go and study criminal justice. And I started getting into politics and, you know, just these different subject matters. I wanted to make a difference. That's what I knew is I wanted to make a difference. And I learned pretty quickly within my first like, year and a half that criminal justice wasn't going to be that path for me. The pathway includes like working at a jail and being like a guard and then being a street cop and so on. So I, I realized pretty quickly that like that was not for me. I have no interest in that. I wanted to, to do something 
a little bit different, but that wasn't going to be as far away as like law school and trying to be like an attorney or something like that. So yeah, my, what I ended up doing is completely different than what I started doing. But once I finished my associate's degree and started looking at like, okay, what do I want to do now? I I had no idea. And I had a, a really good academic advisor who was like, well, what do you like to do? And I said, well, I take pictures. I have a photography business on the side and I'm pretty good at writing, I guess. Like, I I don't know. Like, it's been something I've enjoyed in the past. He's like, well, I've thought about journalism. And I, within 10 seconds, I was like, sign me up. Because I had to pick a, I had to pick a major, you know? So Mm -hmm. I was like, anything to get started. And I just fell in love with it. Well, I think that's like, that's pretty lucky to have the advisor be able to point you in a direction that is something that you actually enjoy. I feel far too often people get into college they pick a major and then they're stuck with that because they've already gone so far, paid so much already. You know, had you gone down the criminal justice route, you may have been in that situation, which I feel far too many people fall into. I I totally agree. And I know a lot of my friends who completed their whole degree and it's in nothing that they want to do at all, you know, whether it's like HR or management or something like that. Like it's, these like kind of like, I hate to use the word boring because there's nothing against those kinds of jobs, but like it it didn't end up being something that was exciting as they thought it was going to be. And they were far too, too along or too far along to, to go any other direction. So it's a really complicated system. I got lucky in compartmentalizing my education and finalizing my AA. So really having two years to just take general studies and Mm. not have to pick one direction until I really had some time in college to, define myself. Yeah, you did that through like an early start head start program, right? Right. So in high school, I didn't finish my AA in high school, I began taking classes for my AA in high school, I was still going to high school at the same time while I was in college. So it was like a half and half, like hybrid program, because they didn't offer all of the classes, well, at least in my hometown that you would need to finish high school. It was just sort of like, you can earn college credits while you go. Right? Yeah, I did a something very similar. I did a running start program. I earned my AA while I was in high school. And I felt like it gave me a chance to kind of just explore the college realm a little bit before like I was in there. And then I happened to go for architecture for my bachelor's. But after working in the field for three years, I found out it wasn't actually what I wanted to do. So it's a little bit of a bummer that I went through all of that college and figured it out afterwards. But I feel like having at least a little bit of experience, a little bit of time to kind of explore a little bit is something that's definitely needed. Yeah, because you're from Spokane, right? So Correct. So we're both from Washington State. So Running Start is the program we both probably took. But what did that mean for you then? If you spent three years, you know, in the field that you went to school for and found out you didn't like it, like, what do you do? Yeah, it's it's been interesting because I wouldn't trade it. It's helped point me in the direction of what I want to go. And that passion now is higher education, why we're on the call talking today. But it's also very painful because I do have student loans and paid for something that I'm not necessarily using anymore. I did learn some valuable skills that I still use every once in a while, but it's it's hard. Yeah, I think you you mentioned to me um, that you were sort of in the ballpark of where I am in terms of the loans that you still owe or the debt that you have, and that's upwards of like $50,000. And so I think for me, we're in the same boat that like we find it meaningful and we acknowledge that we wouldn't be where we are today probably without the experience. But was it worth $50,000 in this lifelong debt that we'll probably always have? (laughs) Right, exactly. And so that's why I brought you on today to chat about the debt problem that we have. I mean, 
1.6 trillion dollars okay <laughs> tuition as an all-time high and even in the pandemic basically they're not you know bringing down that tuition at all forcing students to basically still pay for that even though it's online instead of at campus and so your organization that you work for has arranged something pretty special to kind of mitigate this and you know go through this but before we get to your guys' solution, can you kind of share what your organization is and what it's about? Yeah, sure. So um, Seeking Arrangement is um, the company that I am the spokesperson for, and it is the world's largest sugar dating site. So we have 22 million members worldwide, and we connect sugar daddies with sugar babies. Yeah. And can you explain just a little bit of what that is, that dynamic relationship? Because again, I'm not here to judge, and I want to really like have our listeners understand it so that they can understand why people are going towards this. Yeah. So it's a really like modern and direct way to meet somebody. We pride ourselves on being honest and upfront from the early messages from your profile. So people can know right away if you're somebody who's going to match their needs and be able to meet theirs. And a lot of our members have non-traditional wants and needs, whether that's being polyamorous or having time constraints, but at the end of the day, the goal of a, a lot of the relationships on our site isn't the way that most traditional relationships look. So we're not dating on our site necessarily to get married or to find that partner to bring home for the holidays. It's much more of a progressive dating site in terms of meeting the needs of modern people who have very busy schedules and don't necessarily want the life that their parents had. And how do these people like meet up? What's the sort of transactions like or the agreements that they set up with each other? Yeah. So I hate to use the word transaction. Yeah. <laughs> it's really not transactional. I mean, it is and it isn't because the way that I can easily explain it for, for most people to understand is that in just about every relationship, there is some sort of level of wealth disparity where one partner earns more than the other. And in those relationships, the lesser earning partner benefits financially from that. So that person probably gets to live in a nicer house than they would afford on their own and not with a bunch of roommates or, you know, go on trips they couldn't afford, be in rooms with people they would never otherwise be um, in contact with, sort of the financial benefits of a relationship like this. But like the meet and greets and, you know, getting to know one another looks very much like every other kind of dating. You just might be at a nicer restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And so when you come into this relationship, like both parties are very upfront about what they want on each side and, you know, what they're bringing to the relationship. Yeah. And a lot of times that happens like the first date. I mean, usually it happens in sort of conversations on this site, you know, where you can kind of just cut through the, or cut to the chase. Like, Hey, I'm married. I'm going to be in London next week. I'm looking for someone to have dinner with. Are you that person? And that person can say, absolutely. Sounds like something I'd be interested in. Sounds like fun. Or no, I'm looking for something a little bit more long-term and serious. It's not for me. And so it's, it's just all about being very candid and open. And the cool thing about our site is I feel like if you do that on other dating sites, there's a little bit of like judgment or like people might be taken aback, but it's expected like on Seeking. So, so you kind of know when you're coming on, like someone might hit you with something that doesn't sound appealing and is surprising and new, but you know, there's no judgment there. So historically, your guys' largest user base has been college students. So why is that been? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that. And we can unpack that two different ways. And one is my least favorite, but it's speculation. So we can look at the economic factors and the places where our students are coming from and try to pinpoint 
what's going on there and why these sorts of relationships might be more appealing to, to students in those areas. And the second way is to survey our members, which we try to do pretty often and just sort of ask them why they're coming and you know what they're getting out of it. One of the latest surveys that we just did actually this week, we learned that it was like more than 40% of our members who are students in this survey sample report paying more than the national average for tuition. And I think it was like upwards of $30,000, which is um, a little less than the yearly average for um, an in-state private tuition, but three times more the national average for a public in-state tuition. So, you know, that's just one of the factors. So, you know, their tuitions are very expensive. It costs more for them to go to school or they're coming from areas where there's poverty and they have a difficult home life they're escaping and they might need some, you know, someone to help them kind of get through school financially. So it really just depends. There's, there's no one way to quantify the data, but we try to unpack it as many ways as we can. So college students are having, you know, this huge student debt trying to go to college. And so they're using this website as a way to help pay some of that. Yeah. That's the, that's the black and white version of it. Yeah. Like, I mean, to be straightforward, that is what they're using it for. You know, they're able to connect, connect with people who are generous and because they're oftentimes older, they're much more established in their life. And so they want to see you succeed and they know what it's like to be in your position and they don't want you to struggle. So a lot of the people that are coming to our site, I think it was like 75% actually in the survey that I just referenced, we asked this question too. 75% of people who say that they got the financial benefit monthly for a relationship like this, 75% of those people said that they did receive at least $500 a month specifically for their education. And that could be lifestyle stuff, um, like living expenses or books, tuition, et cetera. And you also mentioned like uh, a lot of times these relationships, you're getting to meet people like in rooms that you may never have been able to get into, different connections, networking, whatnot. So there's that aspect of it too. Yeah. And I think for me, that's the most exciting aspect. I mean, just personally, that's the most appealing aspect is just networking, like getting to meet people is something I don't think young people understand how the importance of connections and who you know is I don't want to say more important than your actual education, but like it really helps. It really helps to get to know people and to have them, whether it's teaching you um, something that's, you know, close to what you're trying to, to go into um, career for, or if it's introducing you to somebody who can get you a job or offer you an internship, just so you stand out among everybody else who went to school for the same exact thing you did and had the same GPA that you did. Meeting people and, and having like friends in high places is really, really important and essential, I think, honestly, to our economy now. I mean, some of your experiences, right? You had some introductions, some foots in the door. I did. Yeah. So I had probably the most strangest one was the main publicist for, for a lot of the biggest porn actors and actresses and then for the AVN awards. And so I met him because he was a source for me on a lot of stories. He would connect me with the various like brothels and strippers and things like that for these sort of Nevada unique stories. And we became good friends and he was able to get me all these different stories that I would have never been able to get without him. Like people in my newsroom had worked there for 30 years and couldn't get their foot into a brothel or, you know, to do a behind the scenes at a strip club somewhere. And so, and those were some of my most, you know, best performing stories in that newsroom and sort of kind of led me to where I am today, but definitely opened up my eyes into being fascinated about this whole alternative relationships, sexuality, lifestyle kind of thing. 
Um, but he's just one of them. You know, a lot of my friends here in Vegas, like I said, are, are educators and attorneys, politicians. And so I don't feel like it would be a struggle for me to, to find work here because of my friend group. I think those uh, network connections are very important. And I can't remember the movie, but uh, there's a line in there basically about who you know and basically being able to get connected with those people. Yeah, I, I think it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I don't know what the movie is or if I'm saying that right, but I think that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of these relationships, historically, they've been kind of looked at as a trade for like a sexual relationship, whereas the sugar daddy is paying the sugar baby for that. How have you guys kind of maneuvered that? And especially with these students coming in to be in these relationships? I think uh, conversations like this, you know, just getting, you know, a general understanding of what this actually is, has been a challenge, I guess, only because there already was a stereotype and already a misunderstanding. We're not coming into something that like didn't totally exist. And so we're just trying to fight the good fight here and explain to people how this isn't sex work. And, you know, we have nothing against um, sex workers at all, but it's just, there are sites for that and this isn't one of them. So, I mean, the biggest difference between these relationships and um, what escorts or prostitutes do is that for them, that's a job, you know, that is an industry, they're making money. And even if you have a repeat client, somebody that you, you know, the girlfriend experience, if you will, it's not a relationship. It's transactional 100%. And it's you providing a service and getting paid for it. Whereas our site is really just actual relationships, you know, people who want to be together. And, you know, there is a financial benefit to that, but not in a way that it's so straightforward. It's not a job. It's dating somebody who has more and can offer you a better life. Right. And in our, I guess what you would call a standard relationship, I mean, there's often some financial aspect of it, whether one person is more well off than the other, they get a house together, one may stay home, the other one goes to work. Like even when you're dating, one pays for dinner, things like that happen all the time. Exactly. And I think, you know, once we sort of normalize it and make people understand that it kind of like a light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, oh, this isn't like we're not reinventing the wheel. This is something that's always existed. We just find a place or we've created a place for those people to find each other, you know, so if somebody has the ability to be more generous and wants to have a partner that they can, you know, we're like, what they make doesn't matter as much as like the ability to have fun with them and make them feel young again. And on the sugar baby side, you know, for them, it's important where they are in life to, to not have to date somebody who's going to make them split the check. So looking at this a little more critically, do you think these students would be on here if there wasn't a financial aspect of it? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think, you know, they're at sort of their prime and mm-hmm. they've just chosen to be more selective in who they date. And they know the benefits that come with someone who is come with dating someone who is older and more established and what they can offer them. I think money is probably the first thing that they hear that draws them to the site. But I think the change in their college lifestyle and experience when they, once they start dating this way keeps them there because they realize they don't have to work the weekend job and they don't have to, you know, date the guy who delivers pizzas. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you compare them to each other, like, and you realize it's, you know, not dating some gross old man, it's like just connecting with someone who's maybe 10 years older than you and, and can show you the world it becomes something that like seems very natural and it's not just about the money. They see the other benefits in it too. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the students that are coming to this. What are some of the top degrees that are these students have? So nursing was number one, business was number two, psychology, number three, biology, number four, 
Education 5, Criminal Justice 6, Art and Design 7, Communications was 8, Political Science was 9, and Accounting was 10. Some of those degrees are very hard, like nursing, biology, like these are very intense degrees that these people are going through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the appeal for coming to a site like ours for someone studying something that's so challenging and so um, just like you're going to be like studying your whole life, like going to school for something like that, like is that you get to meet somebody who is probably already in that industry. You might, if you're a nurse or if you're a nursing student and you get to connect with like a doctor or, you know, a physician or something like that, it's super beneficial to be able to, to connect with someone who's already kind of done that path and can help you or even like just help teach you. What were some of the, the schools that are the top providers basically of these students? Uh, so Arizona State University was number one. Um, proud of that from coming from there. <laughs> Indiana University was number two. NYU, New York University was number three. Georgia State, and then Central Florida, University of Central Florida, University of Alabama, Temple, Florida International University, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV, University of Massachusetts, and then Kent State University. So a pretty diverse set of top 10 this year. Okay. And have these universities or, you know, this year or any year in the past, have they ever reached out to you guys and seeing, you know, kind of what's going on? They haven't, they haven't asked us what's going on. They've, they've told us to remove them from our list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, we've had uh, some schools that are like, no way, like, we don't want to be a part of this list. And, you know, we've had a little bit of pushback. I remember one year, somebody from Georgia State University called me directly and was like, I need to figure out how you guys pull this data. There's no way. And I'm like, I get it. It's a shock, but it's not like, let, let me, you know, walk you back for a second and explain what we're actually doing here. Cause I'm sure to you, you must interpret this as like, you just made the list of like the top 10 prostitute schools in the country or something. And it's not, it just means that your, your students have found a way to, to kind of avoid the student debt crisis in this really super unique kind of new way. And didn't really satisfy her either, but she, she wanted to be removed from the list. And Georgia State's up here again. They're, they continue to be on the list. And I think that's for a couple of different reasons. I mean, a lot of um, universities in the South actually are always in the top 10. I would think that they would want to like know where the money's coming from that the students are paying. You know, I remember filling out the FOSFA to get financial aid and my mom was basically doing some like side businesses. And because she like owned her own business, we couldn't claim that in a certain way. And they like wanted all these records of like where the money was coming from and all of this stuff. And yet some of these students, you know, are paying through something like this, but they don't, the organizations don't even want to understand or know what's going on. Yeah. Well, I think by avoiding the loans and having the means to either pay cash because they, you know, got cash from, you know, their sugar daddy, their partner, or they were able to save because they didn't have to pay for their apartment that month. So they did, they avoided by, they avoided having to fill out that FAFSA or pay the loans or get grants. I mean, I think you still get grants. Not 100% sure, but it's a lot less questions to be asked when you're just like, here's the money. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think as a, you know, difference from you and I is that when we come from like families like that and you're young, you do have to report all of that. I think till you're like at least 18, but yeah, yeah, I think the difference is, is like, there's no questions asked when it's just being paid. 
And I don't know that they want to know. I don't think they care. I think that they just keep raising tuition because they know we're going to pay. And we've built this you know, generation of people who were taught that you would be nothing unless you went. So it's the only way forward. It's the only way you can make something of yourself, right? And so there's sort of this monopoly. Like they're, we have no choice. What, what are they going to do? Stop charging us? We're not going to, you know, we're still going to come no matter what they do. So I don't think they care what, where the money comes from. Yeah, this isn't like the first alternative that anybody's ever looked at to, you know, paying their way into college, whether it be gambling or, you know, some have worked as strippers or, you know, done side businesses or whatever, you know, people have done all kinds of different things to pay for college. Yeah, it's crazy to me that we treat it like such a privilege here in the U.S. I mean, I get it. Education is a privilege. To be educated is a privilege. But the amount of like schooling that we're getting and the actual like process to like get your bachelor's degree is so different in other parts of the world. And it's just sort of like expected and included. And it's not as difficult. And it's certainly not as expensive. And the loans don't follow you forever. I mean, I think in Australia just for an example, they don't even really have student loans. It's like you don't pay anything up front. And then once you graduate and get your job, you begin to do sort of like an income-based repayment thing where it's like, but the, but the cost of the tuition there is so much less too. So it's like 20 or $30,000 for your whole entire schooling. And you're never expected to pay that while you're in school, which I think might actually be the same here in the US. Maybe not, but it's just, it's just different. And they're more forgiving and it's not as complicated as it, as it is here. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we get out of college, like, okay, now we're stuck with this giant student debt yeah. and we're also trying to get like our first jobs. So we usually take whatever pays the highest, whether it be the one that we actually want or not. That's if we can actually get something that we can use with our degree. And then because we're still paying that, like we don't ever look at, Oh, well, maybe I do want to go back or, you know, try something else. It doesn't leave much mobility for somebody coming right out of school. Yeah, there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of um, forgiveness there. It's like once you've, like we said, like once you've decided what you're going to do, you have four years, do it. You've cemented your whole entire life. Good luck doing anything else. Like you've made that choice. And unless you want to spend X amount of dollars to go and get your master's or something like that in something different, maybe a little bit more generic or even more focused, you're kind of stuck in what you, what you got your degree for. And then, and now you have to pay for it. And now it's like, and here's, you know, here's your monthly payment and they don't care if you're working or not. Of these students, you guys do some special programs to kind of help make this like a a safer relationship. There has been things in the past that have happened. And this is another thing why I'm like, why wouldn't the institutions want to know about the safety of their students, you know, being in these types of relationships. Can you kind of expand on what you guys do to really help these be better relationships? It comes back to this general understanding of what these relationships are and what our community is and what the benefits are and, and what they aren't. So we do everything we can to keep our members safe, but it's about conversations, you know, again, like this, where we're sort of explaining, like, this is one way, you know, have you thought about getting a boyfriend who's rich, like, who wants to help you pay for school? Like, that's a great alternative to student loans. But in terms of like the safety aspect of it, it's, it's a lot of common sense. You know, I, I do feel like people have accused us and other you know, industries of being sort of predatory on young people. And that's simply not the case. Like they're consenting adults and we're just saying, you know, you have the ability to meet a, a wider, more better group of people to sort of make your life in college easier, but you do need to be smart about it. You know, meet in public, 
Don't give people your bank account information. Make sure that the person is real and legitimate and is who they say that they are. But there's only so much we can do at the end of the day. It's just like any other sort of online, you know, social network or dating site. I think I've seen that you guys also do stuff to like search messages and like profiles looking for transactional language. Yeah. So like from a customer service standpoint, we have a team that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week out of three different countries. Uh, We have offices in um, the Philippines and Romania and Las Vegas. And so they're constantly looking at actual reports in real time. But we also have artificial intelligence, which crawls the site and messages for anything that could be, you know, transactional language or something that goes against our terms of use. But what I think is, again, like the most important part about our community is that we were really, really into self-reporting. Like if you're on our site and you don't belong there, you're going to get flagged. Someone's going to say like, hey, he's using this for something that it's not for, or this person said this to me and it made me uncomfortable or whatever. And then our team will actually go and look at it and it's found that you were in violation, you'll be banned from the site for life. So we do everything we can to keep our members safe. Yeah, I think that's uh, important to look at because um, like we said earlier, this sort of thing would have happened anyways. And so for you guys to be able to facilitate this in a better way, make it conducive you know, for all parties in a way that actually pushes this forward and then also helps tackle a problem that you know, students actually have. And, you know, like I said, they're going to find whatever way that they can to be able to pay for school because we get fed that it's like the golden ticket to go the, all the way through. And uh, so I think I really appreciate that of your guys's company and that you're doing something about that. How does your, your founder look at the education problem? He's totally against it. Like he, he does not understand why things are the way that they are. He's from Singapore. And so, and he's an MIT grad. So he's got a little bit of a different college experience than Americans, but he's, he's totally against it. He, he's very, very open-minded and very outspoken when, with his political views, but that's one where he certainly is, is, he finds it really troubling. For you personally, like, what do you think would be good solutions to the debt problems that are happening with higher education? I think we've got to put a, a, some sort of cap on the tuition inflation. You know, it's 8% a year. And so every nine years, it doubles. And that's more than any other industry. It's just insane, especially as we look at the world that it is today, where, where is that money going? Because there's no need for groundskeepers or really like a whole lot of administrative staff. Like it's not going towards educators or the professors and things like that. So where is it going? And why are we spending so much money? We don't need another you know, medical school right now that we can't even go on campus. So the fact that there's been no forgiveness or pause on the rate of tuition for so many schools this year is insane to me. So I think that's where we have to start is by limiting the amount that colleges can charge and how it can just be so expensive. And then I think we have to talk about student loan debt forgiveness. You know, I really am optimistic that within my lifetime, we'll have a president who or administration in, in charge who will find a way to forgive my generation for the predatory loans that we all have and this disgusting lifelong debt that we took on just to enter the, the workforce. Yeah, I think we're going to reach a, a point that it's, it's going to have to happen. It's going to be critical, like the 2008 bubble that happened. You know, there's speculation that we're going to have another bubble and it's going to be student loans instead of the housing market. I think so. I mean, it's, it's, there's no way around it. 
And I'm 31. And so for me, like I graduated high school in 2007. And so then like the housing crisis happened in 2008, the housing crash happened in 2008. And then, you know, we've been at war most of my life. And like, it's just been incredibly like just one slap in the face after the other, just trying to make it as an adult. And so, you know, the reality of me being in my 30s now and trying to have some sort of semblance of, you know, the American life that we're all taught to want. It's just so far out of the, like, I don't even know if I'll ever get it or if it's what I want anymore, but certainly getting rid of like the tens of thousands of debt that tens of thousands of dollars of debt that I have for a degree that I'm not using would be a start, you know, because it's, it's the only debt that I have, honestly. And so I, I would love to not have that be like a weight my whole life. Yeah. I think um, our generation we were smart of kind of seeing what debt was like for our parents and not taking on a bunch of other different debts. But when we're told that college is the path to go and then you'll be set or when you're that young, you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll just take on this money. It'll pay. And then I'll pay it later. Even though, you know, we're allowed to drink when we're 21, you know, we have to wait all the way till then, but we have to decide on student loans way before that doesn't make sense at a much earlier age, you don't really understand the consequences at all. I would have much rather spent that $50,000 on a down payment on a house and, you know, a car like my parents did, but like those just aren't options for, for many on our generation. You know, I've been lucky in career to make good money, but I still don't see how I would ever pay off like $50,000 and get rid of that debt. There's just no way. We were mentioning the higher education market, and you know how much they're raising tuition every year and a lot a lot of that does come from the administrative bloat how much stuff they have at schools and i think it's just a poor business model that is the reason why they keep charging so much i mean i think when they are having online classes and not basically bringing tuition down it's because they still have to run all the stuff that is physically built all those other extra things but unfortunately, that cost gets passed off to the student. Yeah. What do we do then? How do we reduce that blow? How do we, you know, keep a, our campuses functioning and make those, I mean, make those calls to the financial aid office last, you know, a half hour on hold instead of an hour on hold or whatever. Like, how do we keep things progressing and, and yet not be charged so much and not have those, those rates go up so high? Yeah, I think it's def- it's definitely a look at the business model, what sort of systems are in place and changing the way that that's done. So what I have been looking at is alternative models. I've been looking at a lot of schools that are done online, online education, matching skills with actual things that will be employable afterwards and running those in a way that doesn't cost, you know, $50,000 in tuition, but is rather Ten or $13,000 in tuition or as a monthly charge or something like that. I've also seen income share agreements where basically you'll pay once you graduate and get a job. And if you never get a job, like you don't have to pay at all. So I think there are some different models out there that could be used. Right. Did you, did you say to me that you were thinking of starting your own like on- online school? So this is what you're talking about, that, that sort of platform? Yeah, I've been putting stuff together to change the way this system is. And really, that's why I invited you on today. Just kind of get and see a different perspective of what the student debt problem looks like from a perspective that maybe others aren't willing to look at. As you said, the institutions basically don't want to know anything and they'll just say, hey, take me off the list. 
I think it's really great what you guys are being able to do with that and um, tackle that problem. And I really appreciate you sharing the things that you had today. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're just trying to do our part. And I appreciate you doing what you're doing, too. I think something that's a little bit more skills based, but also still higher education, we have to find the balance. We have to find the balance between the jobs that are out there and being educated. And so I think, you know, you trying to look at things like a little bit more holistically is going to be really important, too. Well, thank you, Kimberly, so much. You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.